You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. We thank you, God, that you have come near to us in Jesus. That you, have not, you didn't wait for us to find our way to you, but you condescended, humbled yourself to be near to your people, not just to be near us, but to come to rescue us. We pray as we open your word this morning, as we turn our attention in this season toward the incarnation, toward Christ Jesus coming to us, as a child, that our eyes would be uh, opened, that our view would be broad, that we would be in awe of all that it means that you would come near to us, God. Cause our hearts to well up in praise and worship, even this morning. Help us as we open your word. Would you teach us? Would you give us understanding into things that are far beyond our ability to comprehend with our natural minds? Help us believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Welcome to the month of December. I don't know about you, but uh, 2022 has been a blur. Um, Wasn't it just January last week? Um, But here we're given this opportunity here in December to consider the significance of Jesus the second person of the triune Godhead coming to be with us in the flesh. Now, forgive me if this sounds a little nerdy, but we all share a a little bit of history in Western civilization. There's a, a cultural rhythm, a cultural calendar that we're all kind of part of. Our calendar culturally makes room for religious practice and religious celebration. At least it does so far, right? Holidays like Easter and Christmas, are at least recognized. Our culture makes room for them and has for our entire life. And now now there are two kind of sides to that. Two sides to that coin. There's a good and a not so good. Here's the good of this. The good is that it's not crazy to talk about Jesus during Advent. Right? You can talk about church. You can talk about the things in the Bible that you're reading. You can, you know, Luke 1... Behold, shepherds on a field, you know, watching over their flocks by night. This is a familiar thing culturally. We could talk about that. In fact, we were doing some decorating this last week in our house, which probably many of you were doing. Um, And we turned on the holiday playlist on Pandora on the TV, because that's the room where the tree is. And it it was funny to me, it happened multiple times, where there are people, artists, who in their personal lives and in their professional lives would not even remotely claim to follow Jesus. And yet, here they are on my TV singing things like, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Right? The, the, the dissonance is crazy. Absolutely crazy. Obvious Jesus is obvious during Advent. Right? That, there's a good to that. But here's the not so good with that. It comes with the obvious part. Jesus is often assumed, right? 
culturally, you can take or leave the different parts of Christmas or the holiday season that you want. So you can collect the cultural bits that you do like. You can take the cookies and the songs and the cheer and good tidings. You can even take the goodness. There's an inherent goodness in giving to others. But leave out the stunning reality of what it's actually all supposed to be about. That God, in His infinite wisdom and in His grace, was incarnate. That is, He put on human flesh to fulfill all of the covenant promises that God has made to mankind. To display and embody all the glory of God so that we can actually know Him. Further, that He would come so that He would purchase with His own blood people from every tribe and tongue and language and people rising again to glorious and eternal life that we now share with him in the already and we will experience in unfathomable fullness in the not yet. Right? But we miss all of that sometimes, this awesome reality of Jesus in the familiarity of this season. That's the bad side of the coin. So I want us to remember and maybe recover if we need to a little bit what we've lost, all the amazing and awesome, in the truest sense of the word, awesomeness about Jesus. Because what do you do when you discover something amazing, right? You find that recipe that like every kid eats in the house. Or you go to that restaurant and the food there is just, mm, right? What do you do when you discover something amazing? You blog the heck out of that recipe, Right? You post that, like, every mom blog you know is like, my kids eat this. Right? Or you go to that restaurant, where do you get the gift card to your friend? Like, hey, we ate at this place, it was delicious, you should try the whatever. Right? You, you, you gotta try this. You can't help but tell everyone. And so as we looked at the calendar and as we move into to Christmas, coming out of the book of Exodus, our prayer was that the Lord would give us, as a church, a deeper sense of awe. That's the hope here at Advent that we might be freshly struck with the awesome reality of Jesus Christ coming to us. And then it would just kind of leak out of us all season long. That we wouldn't be able to get away from the glory of Jesus coming to us as we celebrate Advent. That we would be awestruck as we consider the various glories, if you will, of the Incarnation. And that it would just kind of leak out of us in our worship, in our time around the dinner table, as we're shopping, as we're spending time with our in-laws. That we couldn't help but worship. So, grab your Bibles and turn to John's Gospel, chapter 1. If you need a Bible, some folks are coming around and can get you one. That was a long introduction, I apologize. But hopefully this sets us up well. John's Gospel, chapter 1. If you'd like to follow along. Our theme for Advent for the next four weeks comes from this chapter. We have seen His glory. Kind of sits right in the middle of this verse. John, chapter 1, verse 14. So our theme for Advent over these next four weeks is that we would glory in the glory of Jesus. And the plan kind of looks like this. Here's going to be our approach. We're going to read every week John 1 verse 14. And then through a couple of different voices, opening God's word each week, we're going to do a deep dive into the different aspects of what's being revealed to us in this one verse. The different aspects or benefits of Jesus Christ coming to us. In, in one way, we're kind of looking at the various glories of Jesus. 
in this verse. And while we do, the hope is that we are building a good Christology. Uh, Go with me for a second. Uh, uh, Theology about who Jesus is. And all good theology is practical and applicable. So at the end of this, I want us to know and love Jesus more and worship him deep, more deeply. So here's the roadmap for Advent for us. Uh, we're going to look at the glory of Jesus as this week, fully God and fully man. That's this week. Next week, uh, Pastor Marty is going to uh, unpack God incarnate, God with us. And then uh, the third week in Advent, uh, we'll dig into the glory of the only Son from the Father, which is that a great line in John 1.14. On Christmas Eve, we'll celebrate the glory of Christ in song and reflection. It'll be a little more call and response. Um, and then on Christmas morning, we'll look at the glory of Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. So we're going to break up John 1.14 into those different segments and then kind of deep dive into the verse, if you will. Um, the side benefit of this series is that we then have an opportunity to memorize a short but profound verse of Scripture. John 1, verse 14. And as I often tell you, like, print it out. Tape it on your bathroom mirror. I suggested people to tape it on their dashboard or their steering wheel, but we don't want distracted driving when there's snow on the ground, so maybe leave it out of your car for now. But uh, put it up at home on the microwave or on the mirror. Uh, this is a way for us to continue to hide God's word in our heart and, and solidify it in our minds so that it's at the front of our minds in the midst of busyness and the emotion of a season. So we're going to read our central verse for Advent this year, John 1, verse 14. Um, and then as we work through our, uh, our sermon today, we'll highlight some other scripture as well. But let's start here. John 1, verse 14. This is God's word for us today. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Today we're looking at that first phrase, the Word became flesh. The reality of the Word made flesh. Specifically, I want to drill down into this idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man. This is not just a minor theological detail, and this is not intended this morning to just to be a theological lecture, but a necessity for us as Christians And a wow factor for us that should stir our worship. I want to uncover, if we can, in just this short amount of time, uh, some brightness and some brilliance of this idea that there's a glory in Jesus being fully God and a glory in Jesus being fully man and a glory in that he is both fully God and fully man. Now, you might ask, where's the glory in this? And the word made flesh help me understand that. And here's my big idea for today. Because Jesus came as the God-man, we can know God. Because Jesus is fully God and fully man, we are being invited through him to truly and deeply know God. To say it another way, we can only know God because Christ has come fully God and fully man. Now this might not seem remarkable to you. Maybe this is something you're like, yeah, yeah, I know that. We can become culture. We can be comfortable. Uh, become comfortable with realities like this too, theological ones. Just like we can become comfortable with the idea of Christmas. 
but to, but to consider the small, limited human mind like mine. That we can truly and deeply know the God who created the universe, who created each one of us. When we really start to unpack that, I think it's far more glorious and awesome than we tend to think. So we have two points today, two main points from, uh, for our sermon. That one, Jesus is fully God, the eternal word, Logos. And two, that he is fully man, <laughs> the word made flesh. So we're going to tackle these realities this morning of the word became flesh. First, Jesus is fully God. The Apostle John here in chapter 1 is talking about Jesus. When he opens his letter or his gospel account, John chapter 1, verse 1, he says this, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word of God, that phrase, is a reference to the eternal Son of God, the second person of the triune Godhead pre-incarnate, that is, before he took on human flesh and was born to a virgin in the little town of Bethlehem, we have a picture of the Son. So right here, in John 1, we have the beginning of how we can begin to understand God. The way we understand God as one God and three persons. Now, we're not going to do a deep dive into Trinitarian theology. Actually, we, we did that a number of I don't know, a couple years ago even, we did a little series on what we believe, and we talked about the Trinity. If you want more resources on that, I'll feel free to share them. I'll share them with you. But we, we begin to understand it here in what John is getting at about Jesus being God. One God, one divine nature or essence in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. They share one divine nature essence being therefore one God. And so Jesus Christ, the eternal son is God. That's what John is starting with right here in the beginning of his gospel, John one. And this is a very significant distinction for Christianity amongst the other religions of the world. Jesus Christ is God. In fact, the Nicene Creed formed at the Council of Nicaea in 325, was established to help solidify this very conversation. By just a few hundred years after the ascension, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the church is expanding, and there's confusion and false teaching about who Jesus is. Is he just a man? Is he divine? What's really going on here? And the faithful church fathers at Nicaea argued from both the Old Testament and the writings in the New Testament that indeed Jesus Christ is, here's how Nicaea says it, true God from true God and of the same essence as the Father. They're making a pretty significant, putting a pretty significant stake in the ground saying Jesus is God. helpful text for us beyond just our text, John 1.14. If you'd like to turn there, Romans chapter 9. It'll be on the screen as well. Romans chapter 9, verse 5. The Apostle Paul writes this. Let me read it and then we'll look at it again. Romans 9.5. To them belong the patriarch, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. 
the Apostle Paul writing to Roman Christians, telling them that the covenants and the promises of God came through the Hebrew people, that Jesus himself comes from this Jewish heritage. Look at it again. To them, Paul says, Romans 9 verse 5, to them, the Jews, the Hebrew people, belong the patriarch. So Paul's referencing Abraham, the covenant head of Israel, and from their race, so their Jewish ethnic heritage, according to the flesh, is the Christ. The Christ is the promised Messiah who would come through the line of David and wouldn't just redeem Israel, but would gather for himself people from every tribe, tongue, language, and people. He was the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham that from you will come descendants. They outnumber the stars in the sky. And then Paul says, here it is, who is God over all? Blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, Jesus who's ethnically Jewish, is God over all. Now, he's, he's not just pulling this out of thin air, either. This is not just a New Testament invention that followers of Jesus after the fact said, well, he's God. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, the scripture that Caitlin read earlier. Now, at Christmas, we often read Isaiah chapter 7. Right? The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Pastor Marty is going to do a deep dive into Emmanuel, the glory of God with us next week. But I want us to go back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has this vision of God in his heavenly dwelling. So Isaiah is given this spiritual picture of God dwelling in all of his splendor. Look with me, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read it again. We already read it, but I'll read it again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of of his glory and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. You get a picture of what this looks like a little bit. This is an awesome scene. And look at Isaiah's response in verse five. And I said, woe is me for I am lost for I have a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Here it is for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here's what I think is happening. Isaiah says, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Specifically, Isaiah saw Jesus in his glory. Here's why I say that. Let's go back to John, but you have to skip forward to John chapter 12. So hang on to this picture of Isaiah who sees the Lord in his glory. John chapter 12 Jesus is telling his listeners, the Son of Man's going to be lifted up. He's talking about his coming crucifixion. I'm going to go to the cross. People don't believe him. Chapter 12, verse 37. Though Jesus had done many signs before them, they still did not believe him. Verse 38. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then Jesus quotes Isaiah. That there's going to be a people who are hearing but not understanding. People who are close to him but whose hearts are far from him. They're not responding 
to the one whom God has sent. Verse 41 of John chapter 12. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who is he talking about? Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. He's saying, you saw my glory and are speaking and spoke of me. And because later in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, you don't have to turn there. Isaiah reminds us that God does not share his glory with anyone. Isaiah is making the case and John is confirming it that Jesus Christ must be God. Co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. As Nicaea says it, true God of true God. Jesus is fully God. Now, the, the mystery of this nature of Jesus is something that, we, that was debated much in the first century. And in the subsequent years of the church, many false views of Jesus, which began at the beginning, are actually still held today. Variations of them. There are many false understandings about Jesus where he is not fully God. So I want to ask the question, so what do we lose? What do we lose if Jesus is not fully God? Well, there's lots of things. Here's a couple that I think we lose. To at least we have to consider. One, if Jesus is not fully God, then what reason is there to submit to him as Lord and King? We shouldn't respond like Isaiah did when he saw the Lord. Woe is me. Right? He was struck by God's holiness, his perfection, And he recognized, in light of all of that, woe is me. I am unclean. Right? If Jesus is only some new and improved man, then there is no reason for you or me to bow in holy fear before him. Not only that, it poses another problem. Jesus is now untrustworthy because he claimed to be one with the Father. He claimed to be the embodiment of the I am who was before the foundation of the world. So if he's not God, then he's lying. And that's a problem. So that's the first thing. Two, if Jesus is not fully God, then his condescending and his coming to us really isn't all that spectacular. He's just another guy. Right? I mean, if he is fully God, then his coming to us is remarkable. The reality that God has condescended, has come low, that he's left glory to come low to us, it makes this all the more remarkable. Because he wasn't just a good man. He was God who's come to rescue us. Pastor Mark Jones, uh, he's an author, wrote an excellent book, highly recommended. It's called Knowing Christ. Um, Jones says this, uh, he says this, to understand what it means for him to be God, Jesus to be God, is to understand how remarkable is his self-giving love for his bride. In need of nothing, he gave up his rights and privileges in order to save those who have nothing, it's us by the way, so that they might attain all that he surrendered. You pick up on that. It's remarkable. He gave up all that he had in order to come to those who had nothing so that those of us who bring nothing to the table are able to, through him, now attain everything that he surrendered. So the question is, do we consider 
the significance, if I can say it this way, do we consider the glory of Jesus being fully God? It's the first point and first question. Second, Jesus is also fully man. John 1.14, the word, the logos, eternal word of God, became flesh. This is a reference to Jesus' humanity. We'll look at another text to help us understand this unique glory. 1 Timothy chapter 2. You can turn there if you'd like. It'll be on the screen as well. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The Apostle Paul is writing to a young pastor named Timothy about God's mission to bring salvation to the world. And then he says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Paul, who just got done telling us in Romans chapter 9, that this Jewish rabbi is indeed God, is also man who is the mediator between sinful humanity and a holy God. Here's what we know about Jesus according to his humanity. He was born of a woman, Mary. He was from the line of David, like we mentioned earlier. He's of Jewish ethnic heritage. He grew in wisdom as a human child grows in wisdom and understanding and knowledge. He got tired and hungry and thirsty. He wept over the death of his friend. He was in every respect the Son of Man, fully human. Just like there's misunderstandings about Jesus' divine nature, there's misunderstandings about his human nature. A prominent one is that Jesus wasn't really or fully human. He was just a human shell for a divine soul to live in while he was on earth. But this doesn't really work in line with God's word. Because he wasn't just born the son of man, but as Hebrews says, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus is like us in every way, the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 4, he has been tempted in every way, just as we are, with one exception, yet was without sin. So the question is, just like there's something to lose if Jesus is not fully God, there's something we lose if he's also not fully man. One, he came as a man to save humanity. He came in the flesh to redeem flesh. He entered creation so that creation might be redeemed. Jesus had a human mind, a human will and emotions so that he might redeem our fallen mind will, and emotions. He lived in a human body so that he might redeem our broken bodies. If Jesus is fully man, excuse me, let me say that again. If Jesus is not fully man, then we have little hope for healing. Our hope for healing, both in this life and in the life to come, is found in the resurrected and glorified human body of Jesus. By his stripes, the scriptures tell us, we're healed. By the wounds he took, by his punishment that he took, according to his humanity, we have peace. 
If Jesus were only divine and just pretending to be human, then it would give us no benefit there. Second, Jesus, according to his humanity, was dependent on the Holy Spirit to walk in holiness and obedience to the Father. If he wasn't fully man, then we miss the power of the Holy Spirit at work in Christ Jesus in the gospel accounts, and we miss the Holy Spirit's power at work in us. The scriptures are clear. It's the Holy Spirit who gives the Son wisdom and insight and power. It's the Holy Spirit who comforts the Son in his distress. It's the Holy Spirit who strengthens the Son to endure mistreatment and false accusations and to endure all the punishment he took on the way to the cross. It's the Spirit of God who raised the Son from the grave. So while Jesus is unique as a man, he's still a man, according to his humanity, relying on the Spirit to walk according to the Spirit. And as disciples of Jesus, we look to Jesus to walk as he walked, dependent on the Spirit for wisdom and insight and power and comfort and strength. We need that. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Paul says this, If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. It's Jesus' perfection. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So, do we consider the depth and the significance? If I can say it this way, do we consider the glory of Jesus being fully human? Now, the question is, how do we understand this? How do we hold these two remarkable realities together? Because we are smart, logical people. S-M-R-T, smart. Right? How do we hold these two things together? Here's the $10 theological term. Hypostatic union. Okay, just nerd out with me for just a second. Hypostasis is the Greek word for subsistence. Think in terms of individual existence. You subsist as an individual person. Okay? Hypostatic union, then, is the theological term that in the individual person of Jesus was constituted a complex person with both a human will or human nature and a divine nature. In the singular person of Jesus constituted both a human nature and a divine nature. Now, we don't have to fully get our heads around that mystery to say that we can have a true and real understanding of it. We don't have to say, yes, I can logic that to the end because our minds are finite. For the record, none of us is God. If you didn't know that, Now you do. But it doesn't mean we can't have a true understanding of that reality. Here, nerd with me for one more second. In 451 AD, so just, you know, a little while ago, the Chalcedonian Creed was penned to help clarify this mystery. And it is still unsurpassed in its ability to make clear 
as clear as it can be for our finite minds, something that is broad and great and mysterious. Here's what it says. And fair warning, this is over two slides and it is one sentence. Okay, so those of you who are like, there's too many commas in that, I agree with you. But the reason that this statement is one sentence over two slides is to help show that it is one. So just bear with me for a little bit. I'm going to read it. It's on the screen. I'll link to it this week as well. But let me just read this. This is from the Chalcedonian Creed, AD 451. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. Truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards to his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary, excuse me, the vir- yeah, of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence. Here's that word again. Not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Logos, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. It's the longest sentence I've ever read. But again, one of the reasons it's, I think, so good is not because like, oh, now it makes sense. No, this is still like, this is still working around in our minds and hearts, right? But, but it's saying, is Jesus fully God? Yes. Is he fully man? Yes. And we're just going to put it all with a bunch of commas and semicolons, so you have to do it all at once. You can't separate it, and I think that's kind of the point. Now, there's two, like I said, I'll put some more resources in the weekly update uh, on this topic if you want to do some deep dives. But, but there's a, a po- two positive statements and the four negative statements that this creed makes, which I just want to highlight. One of them is this. The positive ones are this, that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Those are the positive affirmations that we're anchored to. Who is Jesus? Jesus is fully God and fully man. And to help frame out what our finite minds can't quite get around, and what I love about this particular statement is then there are four kind of negative statements to help us understand what's not happening. So let me just talk about those briefly. One person, two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. First, without confusion. 
the Lord Jesus Christ is not a mixture of two different things. This is not a, a little bit of red and a little bit of blue makes purple. That's not what this is. He is not the mixing of the divine nature and the human nature. He is fully God and fully man. Two, without change. In taking on a human nature and taking on human flesh, the eternal word, the logos, did not stop being what he had always been as the eternal and divine son. The nature of God did not change with the addition of a human nature to the son in the incarnation. Three, without division. Jesus isn't half man, half God. Right? That one's easy. Four, without separation. The union of human and divine in the person of Jesus is a real union. It's not just like a theoretical one. It's not just a divine nature filling up a human body. It's a real union. And this is important because Jesus, the God-man, enables us to know God. If Jesus was not fully God, then he could not bear the wrath of God for sin and rise again to new and glorious life. It would destroy him entirely. And if Jesus was not fully man, then his sacrifice for our sin would be insufficient because it wouldn't actually pay for men's sins from Adam. So Jesus comes as fully God and fully man to absorb God's wrath and to offer a perfect sacrifice so that we as humanity might be welcomed in. Uh, Pastor Mark Jones, uh, in an article he wrote on this topic, which I'll again link to, kind of highlights some things. I'm going to paraphrase from him a couple of points of application because they're so good. I just want to reference him. He says this, Jesus is the God-man means that we are confronted with a God who is holy and who is altogether too great for us. As hard as we try, we can only barely comprehend his majesty and the mystery of this. And this is a good thing. It's actually a comfort to us that God is too great for us. We do not want a God we can manage. And we're reminded over and over again that God is so much greater than our ability to fit him into a nice little clean box. That's a good thing for us. Two, Jesus as the God-man shows us the heart of God who desires to be with his people. To the point where God himself would condescend into the pers- in the person of the Son shows and show us his glory. That we might know God, that we can have communion with God. It is through Jesus that we have access to God. Jones says that theology, worship, communion, and heaven on earth the already of God's promises, Jesus makes all of that possible. That without him, there is no possibility of relationship between a holy God and a sinful man. Jesus coming to us reminds us that from the very beginning, from when Adam first fell and God pursues Adam in the garden to say, Adam, where are you? From that point forward, we see God is on a pursuit to rescue and redeem his beloved people. And three, Jesus as the God-man gives us hope. We can have actual, legitimate hope. Because not only can we know him as we do now, but we are stirred with a hope that we will one day see him face to face. 
We can bring glory to God in Christ here as we live and work and worship, right? What is the chief end of our lives? We talked about this at the end of Exodus last week. The chief end of humanity is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So the God-man gives us hope here in the already and a vision of hope in the not yet of eternity. Friends, my hope for us at Advent is that our vision of Christ would be big. That we wouldn't stop at the, the figurine on the shelf of baby Jesus in a manger, if that's what you do. Which is fine. I have one on my shelf. But that we'd be able to see in that, push through some of the, the shell of the mundane and the familiar, and we'd see with fresh eyes the glory and the majesty and the mystery of Jesus, that our hearts would be reignited with worship. So let us press on to know him as he's revealed himself to us, the God-man who has come to us so that we might know him and worship him. Would you pray with me?